Well, if you could keep those passages open in your Bibles or on your devices, that would be great. Let's pray that God would help us to uh, think about them. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray you will give us clear minds and open hearts to receive your word, to believe it, to rely on it and to live it out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mystery and power. Mystery and power are both highly appealing phenomena. I mean, for instance, who doesn't like a bit of mystery? Uh, a few weeks back, uh, Shireen and I went to see Kenneth Branagh's movie adaptation of Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile, which we enjoyed. It was a murder mystery. It was a whodunit, and we enjoyed watching it. In fact, uh, we were sufficiently enjoyed it, such that we went and watched Peter Ustinov's 1978 version of Death on the Nile, and then not long after that we watched David Suchet's 2004 version of Death on the Nile. So entranced were we by this. And I mean, who doesn't like a who good done it? A good who done it? Sorry, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple, Hercule Poirot, uh, Death in Paradise, uh, Midsummer Murders, Father Brown, whatever. We like a bit of mystery, but we also like a bit of power as well. I mean, no one likes feeling disempowered, you know, marginalised, ineffectual, unable to do things. We want to be empowered, you know, feel we have the capacity to effectively act, to be proactive, to make changes, to do things, to make a difference. Mystery and power, good stuff. Now, of, of course, mystery and power have their dangers. An unhealthy interest in mystery might lead someone towards, say, the occult. Or an unhealthy interest in power, well, you know, Lord Acton famously said just over 100 years ago, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, so they, are, they have their dangers. But mystery and power, depending on what sort they are, can be good. Now, today's passage is all about a mystery, that is the revelation of a mystery, and it's also about power, the good use of a good power, the sort of power which, if you're a Christian, you will want to have as part of your life. Now, as you would have known, uh, we're continuing our series in Ephesians, and we've reached chapter 3. And uh, no surprises, I've called today's sermon Mystery and Power. And the main points are set out on the handout, which I trust many of you have picked up on the way in. And firstly, I want to think about a mystery made known, that's focusing on verses 1 to 13. And then secondly, a prayer for power, focusing on verses 14 through to 21. So that's where we're going. Let's start with a mystery made known, 1 to 13. And the passage opens, of course, with verse 1, which reads as follows. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then do you see in the text there, there's a really big dash there. If you've got the text, there's a big dash. And uh, Paul sort of breaks his thinking, his line of, of what he was going to do. And uh, before he gets on to what he was possibly originally going to say or write next, he goes on a bit of a diversion, a digression, which goes from verse 2 right through to verse 13. Now, this diversion or digression is a good one. You know, have you ever been driving in the country, you've been going down the highway and you see sort of an alternative tourist drive, which you can take, often with a brown sign or something like that. And if you ever take it, you go take this diversion and it's often really a worthwhile thing to do. Well, this is a little bit like that. Paul's um, where he was going. He's been diverted off it. And uh, says in the, in, at the end of the diversion is verse 13, where he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged 
because of my sufferings for you. Now, it seems to me that the diversion was to prevent the Ephesians from being discouraged about something. Now, why would he have gone on this discouragement-destroying diversion? Well, I think the logic is as follows. In verse 1, it says, for, I, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, he's mentioned that he's a prisoner. Now, uh, it could be that for the Ephesian Christians, remember, they would have been a fairly small church in a very big city, which had the temple of Artemis. You know, they were very much a minority. And Paul was their main earthly mentor. He's the one who helped set up the church there. Paul's in prison. They could have been tempted to think, oh, my goodness, something has gone wrong. Things are out of control. This is you know, dangerous. So I think Paul, in verses 2 through to 12, indicates that basically, look, he's been preaching the gospel. He's been preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. We know that it was preaching to the Gentiles got him into a lot of trouble. And it was because of that, if you read the book of Acts, he ends up in prison. So Paul, is, I think, is saying things are not going off plan. I've been doing exactly what I've been supposed to be doing, preaching to Jews and Gentiles. I've got into trouble through doing that. You know, we were warned to expect opposition. Don't worry. Don't be discouraged. This is part of the plan. I think that's what the digression is about. Now, before we move on from the digression, though, in the same way that a tourist, you know, diversion or digression has some really good things to look at, there's a lot of really good stuff to look at in the verses 2 through to 12 uh, as Paul goes through this explanation. Because it's all about mystery, this diversion. It's all about mystery. It's a mystery revealed and then a mystery proclaimed. The mystery is revealed in verses 2 through to 6. Uh, in verse 3, he says, he refers to the mystery made known to be by revelation. And he uses the word mystery on three occasions. Whenever you see that there's a mystery, you want to know, ooh, you know, what is the mystery? Now, uh, Agatha Christie wrote a very famous play called The Mousetrap, which has been running pretty much uh, since 1952 in London. And the only time it ever stopped was, for, I think, for a year because of COVID, but it's back running again. And the end of that play, it's a mystery, it's a whodunit, there's a twist at the end, apparently. And people who go to the play are told, don't tell anyone what the twist is, what the mystery is. You're sort of sworn to secrecy, I believe. Fortunately, with this mystery in Ephesians, no one has been sworn to secrecy, Paul explains what the mystery is. So in verse uh, 4, we learn that the mystery has something to do with Christ. In verse 5, we learn that it was not made known previously to people in previous generations. So people in the Old Testament didn't know this mystery. And then in verse 6, we get the big reveal. It's as if, you know, Paul and, or Hercule Poirot gets everyone into the library and here's the solution. Here's the solution to the mystery. In verse 6, Paul writes, the mystery is, here we go, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. That's the mystery that through the gospel, that by being in Christ, Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled and Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled with God. Hold on. You might think, I mean, how on earth is, how, how is that a mystery? How is that not known to people in generations gone by? I mean, isn't the whole Old Testament pointing towards Jesus and the need for Jesus to come and sort out our problems? 
And doesn't God say in the Old Testament on numerous occasions that he's concerned about the nations, he's concerned about the Gentiles? Um, Isaiah 49.6 talks about that. Uh, Genesis 12.3, you know, through Abraham's descendants, all nations will be blessed. The Bible says that he's concerned for everyone, he needs to help everyone, that Gentiles are part of the plan. How on earth is this, being united to God and being united to each other, a mystery? What's mysterious about that? Well, uh, I think there are two sorts of mysteries. We could say there are two sorts of mysteries. There's um, a mystery where we're wanting to know, my goodness, what is going to happen? So like at the end of a whodunit murder mystery, you're thinking, what is the detective going to say that the solution is? You're waiting to find out what's going to happen. That's one sort of mystery. But there are other sorts of mysteries as well, like when you know exactly what has happened, you just don't know how on earth it happened. So like a magic trick, right? You see someone do a magic trick, there's a magician, there's a levitating person, that magician gets the hoop, you know, runs it across the levitating person. You think, my goodness, how is that person levitating? I know it's going on, I just don't know how it's going on like that. I think the mystery Paul is speaking of here is a bit like that magic trick sort of mystery. The people of God knew that there was going to be some sort of solution between people and God and that Gentiles were going to be included in John's plan. But the question was, how on earth was it going to happen? I mean, how can sinful people and a holy God get together? How on earth are Jews and Gentiles, who hate each other's guts a lot of the time, how on earth are they going to be reconciled? Well, the answer is, of course, the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection gets us right with God and the gift of God's spirit enables people who were once enemies to become friends, Jews and Gentiles. The mystery is the how and the gospel explains the how, that we can be united with God uh, and united with each other. So... I think it's very interesting that this unity uh, between people e each other is very important. Did you notice in verse 6 that it refers to people being heirs together, members together and sharers together? This idea of being together is very powerful. Obviously, central to God's plans, important to God's plans for the world, it's not just that we get united with God, but that Christians, followers of Jesus, are united with each other, that there is unity in the church. And in fact, the gathering of Christians, the church, like this meeting here, is absolutely central to God's plans. You see, becoming a Christian is not just about getting right with God, which it clearly is, but it's also about becoming part of a united church, a united group of Christians, God's people. The, the, the church is crucial. Now, I've been quoting John Stott a lot recently in, in recent weeks because I've been reading a, a, a commentary on Ephesians by John Stott, which is very good. And one of the things John Stott says at this point, which I think is very helpful, is the following. He says, if, ch if the church, like a meeting like this, is central to God's purpose, as it is seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely be central in our lives. So if we're Christians, the church should be central in our lives. He goes on. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? I mean, how on earth could we take the church lightly? He says, how dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the centre? You see, the church, uh, whichever church we're part of, is supposed to be a central part of our life, not a helpful addition out there on the, on the periphery with, you know, our interest in whatever, you know, music or quilting or 
football or whatever it is. It, it's central. It's not a, like an add-on. And he says, as Stott says, look, no, we should seek to become responsible church members active in some local manifestation of the universal church. So what he's basically saying is this whole idea that we're saved to be united with God and united with each other, and the manifestation of that is the church, whichever church we're part of, for us at the moment, it's this church here, this, Stott would say, is central to our living as saved Christians. Um, interesting, I think they're good words. Well, that's the mystery revealed how we can get right with God and become unified with each other. But then, uh, having revealed the mystery in the second part of this, this section, he says, well, this mystery needs to be proclaimed. Others need to hear about it. And, of course, if you know much about the Apostle Paul, you read the book of Acts, he went all around the place, Asia Minor, Europe, etc., uh, telling people this, this, this wonderful message. And, of course, we are tasked with continuing that message. You know, reach, build, send. One of the things we're supposed to be doing here is reaching out with the message about Jesus. And so it's for that reason that pretty much I think every service we ever have, we pray for outreach uh, at our church here. For that reason, we won Christianity Explained and Big Questions. For that reason, I've been urging people to read Sam Chan's book. For that reason, if your kids go to Spark or Ignite, they're encouraged to bring their friends along, you know? so they can hear about Jesus as well. And it's for that reason we put on various events at our church, uh, which you can invite people along to, so they can hear about Jesus as well. The mystery is revealed, the mystery needs to be made known. Pretty good diversion, wasn't it? Verses 12, 2 to 12. Well, the diversion finishes. Uh, Paul says, I hope you're not discouraged by that, everything's okay. And then we get on to the prayer in the second half of this passage, the chapter, verses 14 through to 21, and it's a prayer about various things, but I'm going to call it a prayer for power because Paul prays for two, or for power, to do two sorts of things. Now, this is really quite an extraordinary prayer and many of you may recall at the start of this year we looked at some prayers of Paul uh, in church. Here we get a chance to do so again, another prayer of Paul. And it's an extraordinary one. Uh, there's a guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones who was one of the famous uh, English, well, he wasn't English, he was Welsh, I think, British preachers uh, last century. A lot of people are huge fans of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he once said about verses 14 to 21, he said the following. He said, I confess freely that I do not recall in my preaching ministry having dealt with anything in the scripture where I have been conscious of my inadequacy and inability as this particular passage. So Martin Lloyd-Jones really struggled with this passage. Not because... It's that hard to understand. I think with a bit of effort we can understand it. But because it's so hard to adequately convey the significance and the importance and the, the incredible nature of what it talks about. And as I look about it, I, I think the same myself. I can do my best to explain what it means, but I, I, I've got zero chance, well, pretty much zero chance, of getting you to fully appreciate how incredible it is. But I'll give it my best shot. So... Let's look at the prayer. Verses 14 and 15 tell us why, how and to whom Paul prays. Verse 14 starts with the following. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Why does he pray? For this reason. Well, what's the reason that's for this reason? Well, it's sort of referring back to verse 1 of chapter 3, which also starts with the same words, for this reason. What does chapter 3, verse 1 come after? Well, chapters 1 and 2. It's the things which we were looking at in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians which provoke Paul to pray the prayer he's about to pray. 
What sorts of things were we looking at in chapters 1 and 2? I'm not going to go through it all, but you may recall it spoke about the fact that Christians have every spiritual blessing and that we were dead, but we're now alive with Christ and that we were separate, but we're now unified with other believers as Christians. These and other truths are what drive Paul to pray. How does he pray? says in verse 14, I kneel. He kneels. Now, there's nothing in the Bible which says this is the correct posture in which you must pray. I mean, we can pray in all sorts of postures. We could be standing, we could be sitting, we could be kneeling, we could be reclining, we could be prostrate on our face. You know, you, you pick it. They're, they're all fine. In the first century, I understand that the normal Jewish posture for praying was standing up. And so why is Paul deciding to kneel here? Well, I've read that when someone kneeled in the first century, it showed a real level of earnestness, of real engagement with the prayer. And I actually think the same sort of applies today. Do you ever sometimes find yourself thinking, I am so engaged with this prayer, I'm actually going to get up and kneel down, or get out of bed and kneel down, or kneel down, whatever you are, kneel down and pray. I've done that sometimes. You know, it shows that we're really engaged with what we're doing. There was a guy called T.S. Mooney who lived in Northern Ireland last century. He was a banker. And uh, T.S. Mooney, for 50 years, ran a Bible class for boys. He ran a Bible class for boys for 50 years. And apparently, uh, he was very committed <laughs> to this Bible class and the boys who were in it. He would teach them and he would pray for them. And many of them went on to become things like surgeons and teachers and bankers and the like. And a number of them also went on to be involved in pastoral ministry. Very dedicated to these boys. And then uh, one day in 1986, a much older man by now, Mooney was found dead. Where was he found? He was found kneeling next to his bed, fully dressed. Apparently he'd got up, got dressed, presumably got down to pray. And that's when um, he was called home. And when they went to move his body, they discovered that he was kneeling at his bed. He'd fallen forward, I think, onto his prayer list. What was his prayer list? He was praying for all those boys. You know, he died praying for the boys he'd cared about 50 years. I guess he was earnest in his prayer to the end. And I actually find that really... Gee, if you're going to go, what a good way to go, praying on your knees. So, earnestness. He's, he's very earnest. To whom does Paul pray? He prays, it says, to the Father. The Father is someone who is, of course personal. But we also know that the Father is powerful because we read in verse 20 that he is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. I can ask for a lot. I've got a pretty good imagination, but God can do far more than that. So that's, you know, power, isn't it? Okay, so that's the preliminaries. What actually is Paul going to pray about? Now, what people pray about is usually very illuminating. Um, John Stott again says that one of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of their prayers. That's true, isn't it? The things which we care about, we'll usually pray about. The things which we're not too fussed about probably rarely turn up in our prayers. So, uh, what does Paul pray for? Well, he prays for power. He prays, in fact, for power to do two sorts of things, as we'll see. But does the fact that Paul prays for power surprise you? I mean, isn't power what politicians and business leaders and sports people are after? Isn't power what Emperor Palpatine was after in Star Wars? Isn't power what J.R. Ewing was after in Dallas? 
So that they're two different demographics will relate to one or other of those. Um, you know, isn't it dangerous to pray for power? Well, I guess it depends on what the power is for, what it's aiming to achieve. Now, the first sort of reason why Paul prays, prays for power is found in verses 16 and 17. Let me remind you of what it says. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith? I mean, if we're Christians, doesn't God dwell in us already? Well, yes, that's true. But as an American theologian by the name of Charles Hodge once commented, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. Now, uh, there are a couple, here's some Greek word excitement for you. Do you want some Greek word excitement? Because it was originally written in Greek. There are two sort of Greek words for inhabit or dwell or live somewhere. Uh, one is called peroikao, which is the weaker term, which is sort of if you're renting somewhere or you're visiting somewhere or you're in an Airbnb just temporarily there, that's the sort of word you would use there. That's not the word being used in this passage. The, passage, the word being used here is skatoikeo, uh, which means to settle down in, to dwell in, to live in, to make your home. This is where you are going to be. It's a permanent thing. Now, you would know that if you move into a house or a unit and you want to make it your home, what do you do? You paint it, you renovate it, you put up your pictures, you move things around, you make it your sort of place. When we're praying that God would dwell in our hearts, we're really praying that same thing, that God who is in us would make our lives his own. He would renovate, he would paint, he would move things around. He would sort things out. He would make our lives the sort of lives which he would be happy to live in. You get the idea? It's a bit of a metaphor. But making us really uh, more like Christ. I use this analogy when I do Christianity Explained courses. Sometimes I compare our lives to like a, a floor plan of a house with different rooms. There's, you know, a room which is, I don't know, job, ambitions, marriage, leisure, sexuality, hobbies, etc., and when we become a Christian, God comes into our lives and starts going through the, all the house, renovating it, and sort of thinking, oh, you need to work on your ambition there. You need to work on your, your marriage there. You need to work on how you go about your leisure activities there. And uh, I think the experience of Christians it usually is that as God goes around our lives, he will find things which need work. That's certainly the case with me. So, uh, you know, I often find that God spotlights uh, bad attitudes that I have, or bad ways of thinking, which I sometimes lapse into, or, you know, dark thoughts which sometimes can float to the surface, all things which don't glorify God, which don't help anyone else and don't help me. And I often think, you know, how on earth can I get rid of this way of thinking? How can I stop these thoughts occurring? How can I stop, you know, being driven in that sort of direction when I don't really want to? Sometimes I feel quite powerless to change certain things. Well, only God can change us, right? So we're really praying that God would dwell in us, would change us, would renovate us, would make us the person he wants us to be. You know, are you aware of habits, you know, self, you know you're selfish in a certain area or you lapse into pride or you're quite arrogant about certain things or you get angry at certain times or you feel overcome by resentment on occasions and it just keeps bouncing back. We're praying that God would dwell in our hearts we're praying that he would renovate us, get rid of that stuff, make us into who he wants us to be. And then it says in verse 19, so that we will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ, which basically means that we'd be like Christ. <laughs> we'd become more like Christ, we'd become more the person in which uh, Jesus or God would like to dwell. So if you want to be more like Christ, you want to be renovated, that 
first part is the thing to pray. Let's look at the second sort of power uh, that, that Paul prays about. And this power to grasp the dimensions of God's love. Look at verses 18 and 19. Paul prays that we'd have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide, long, high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses knowledge. Now, why on earth would we need to pray that? I mean, we know God loves us, don't we? For goodness sake, if some of us have been going to Sunday school for, you know, and church, we've heard the song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know that God loves us. What's, what's the deal here? Well, I think as Christians, we do know that God loves us to some extent, but do we really know the extent to which God loves us? I would argue that we have almost no comprehension of how much God loves us. Maybe we've got a quarter of a percent comprehension, if that. I mean, Paul clearly thinks so because he refers in verse 19 to God's love that surpasses knowledge. So if it surpasses knowledge, how on earth can we ever get a handle on it? It's much bigger than our puny minds can ever grasp. Now, I sort of think, you know, if you're a parent, perhaps you're a parent, uh, and uh, your kids hopefully know, whatever age they are, that you love them. Do you think they appreciate the extent to which you love them? Do you think that they appreciate um, some of the sacrifices you've made for them over the years? But I mean, often when they get older, they get a bit of better grasp. But when kids are pretty young, they probably don't have a clue of what you sacrificed for them or what you've given up for them or what you're doing for them. They know you love them, but they don't appreciate the extent of it. It's like that as Christians. We know God loves us, but we just don't appreciate uh, the extent. Now, John Stott gives it a good go to describe the dimensions of God's love. And so here's his effort at it. He says that God's love, it's wide enough to encompass all of humankind, even Jew and Gentile. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him to heaven. That's a pretty good go. Now, if God's love and appreciating the extent of it is it's beyond our comprehension, why should we even try? What's, what's the value in trying to get a better handle on God's love? Well, it's because it will make all the difference and it will transform your life. We would know that if children feel loved, it's really good for their development, isn't it? If they don't feel loved, it can be harmful. Uh, the American actress Melanie Griffith um, I was reading about her the other day. Uh, she once spoke to Vanity Fair magazine and she said, I was never loved unconditionally. Booze, you know, alcohol, gives you a feeling, a physical sensation, a buzz inside your body that takes the place of something you should have had when you were a child. So uh, I guess she's reflecting on the fact that perhaps she didn't feel loved in the way she felt she could have been or should have been and booze was her response to that. Probably not an unusual um, account. If you don't realise how much you're loved uh, or you don't feel loved, um, it can be very harmful. By contrast, love, when we have it and appreciate it, changes everything. I've got a quote here from a 17th century English Puritan pastor. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? And he, what he says is in a bit of, it's quite archaic language, but I'll take it slowly because I think what he says is really helpful. And I'll translate one or two bits as well. He says, I, the Father, as love, which he means look upon or see the Father as love. Uh, look on him, look not on him as an always lowering Father, which means, you know, not, don't look upon him as a dark or threatening Father, 
but as one most kind and tender. Let us look on him by faith as one that has, uh, who has had thoughts of kindness towards us from everlasting. Let then this be the saints, that's the Christians, first notion of the Father, as one full of eternal, free love towards them. He uses God's attitude to us, kind, tender, uh, eternal love. And he says that's the way we should originally think of God. Now, if we think of God that way, that will transform how we live. Just like, you know, Melanie Griffith would have been like to have been transformed and the way a, a child, yeah. Now, one of the things Owen says is that viewing God that way will help us deal with life's discouragements. And, you know, we all know life has its discouragements and disappointments. But not only that, uh, being aware of God's love will make us want to spend more time with God. And it will also make us want to speak to others about God more. So, we can't appreciate God's love even remotely by ourselves. How are we going to get a better handle on it? We need God's power. We need power from God to appreciate his love. So what are the two things we need power for? For God to dwell in us, to make us more like Christ. And we need God's power so that we can better appreciate his love for us and thus be transformed in every way. So the big idea I've said uh, for this passage is revealing mysteries, that's the gospel, prayers for power, that's the Christian life. Let me pray for us. I'm going to pray those very things. <laughs> Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing the mystery of the gospel to us. We pray that we would understand it and promote it. And Lord, we also pray for power for two things. We pray for your power as you dwell in us to renovate us into more the people you want us to be. And we pray for your power to better understand what we have no hope of understanding by ourselves, which is the extent of your love and kindness towards us. We pray for your power for those two things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.